As we open up this final week in our message here, I want to address one last time a, a different kind of wound, um, not the wounds that you might be feeling. This morning I wanted to focus on the wounds that maybe our community is feeling, wounds that they receive every single day. Maybe it's from the church, maybe it's just from life, but how do we respond to the wounds of our neighbors this morning? Last week, we looked at how Paul dealt with church hurts, both his strategy and his mindset. And again, whether they were somebody in the church that hurt him or somebody, a neighbor hurt him, I think his strategy and his mindset speaks into all of those situations, right? A mindset reflected a heart bent on loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Which issued, played out in Paul's love and concern for the dignity and the salvation of his accuser. That was his top concern, Right? How do I get my accuser to pray repentance and accept Christ and share eternity with me? That, that, that was Paul's focus, not I need to get this guy. Right? He is wrecking my career. He's wrecking my churches. He's wrecking everything. I need to do something about this guy. And yet Christ, excuse me, Paul, his only concern was the dignity and the salvation of his accuser. So this morning, I want to build a bridge, kind of a connection, a transition maybe, right, between your own wounds and, again, the wounds being created daily in the lives of our neighbors. I made a lot of mistakes as a rookie youth pastor. Sadly, I didn't say a young rookie youth pastor. I was like 36 when I started, so I think my pastor mistakenly trusted me. A good story for a different message was the night a kid ended up naked on stage in front of 40, 50 of his closest friends and family. But I got a different story this morning. Now listen, if you take my baptism class, I might share that other story with you. But this is the story of a 30-hour famine, right? We do this. David's kind of done something similar to this. It's something that youth groups do, right? 33-hour famine, whatever. And it's to help the teens focus on perspective, right? Keeping a perspective of, of how good they have it here in America and, and kind of open their eyes to what the world experiences, the rest of the world. Um, and so we have what was called the, the real world banquet. Um, and the idea was, I gave out all these tickets that were, um, and I told the kids for every four blue tickets that you sell, I want you to sell one green ticket. Didn't tell them. They didn't know. People buying the tickets had no idea. It was just random, Right? So they sold all these tickets, and what they represented once the folks came in is if you got a, um, a blue ticket, right, every, every five people, there were four people with blue tickets, you represented 80% of the world, right, that produced 80% of the world's produce, and then the 20%, if you had that green ticket, you represented 20% of the world that consumed what the 80%. This is just kind of the lesson, and the idea, they'd all come in, and depending on their ticket, right, if you had a blue ticket, you were ushered over, I believe you had them, had them sitting on the floor and you had rice and water. But if you had a green ticket, right, one in five, you were ushered over here and you had steak, you had a waiter, you had fine linen, dining. And so this was all in our fellowship hall. We had about 40, 50 people on one side sitting on the floor eating rice and water, drinking water. And the other side, about 10, 12 people, they were eating steak. Right, so I just kind of want you to just imagine, picture, picture. What's going to happen now? 40 or 50 people over here eating rice, all looking over at the, about the 10 people eating steak, fried chicken, baked potatoes. Each table had their own waiter. They had to go 
They didn't, we didn't even give them utensils, right? They ate rice with their fingers. What do you think happened? It got ugly. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking probably somebody over here might get up, you know, take the plate over here and share. Or, or maybe somebody over here would go, come on over here, boy. make some room. Come on, make some room. It never happened. It just got weird. And these were core, solid church people, mature believers. They did, and, and I get it. I, I, I did a, a, a project, my master's degree, my thesis was on the dangers of using simulations, right? Role-playing games. The danger is that things about yourself might be revealed that you don't want to reveal. And that's kind of what happened that night. It was odd. It was weird. I mean, the, the, the rich people over here, they were literally cold-facing. They wouldn't look at them. And I'm watching, I'm just thinking, this is getting weirder and weirder. They would literally not look at them. One I remember, they asked for butter for their rice. And the response was, hey, we only got, right, and we, we, the potatoes aren't out yet. And, and literally they were saying, that's just the way it is. This is just, the, this is, Jerry set this up. They were literally, this is just the way it is, just be happy, stop complaining. And then the other side, they started out good-naturedly pleading. And then, it, then they were asking, like, seriously, and they were saying no. And it, it, got, it got so tense. And I, and I had, I, I mean, this whole time, I'm just, I mean, again, on this side, undeserved, unearned pride and, and, and hubris and and then on this other side, right, this isn't fair. I mean, there were serious wounds being created with this silly youth group game. The church all came together, and, and there was still, there was still hurt. It was, it was just crazy. And again, it didn't happen, but what would have happened if just one rich person had moved over, right, or invited somebody else over? I know at least one person in that crowd would have been surprised by hope. They would have been surprised by hope. Because I think every person eating rice wanted to be surprised by hope that evening, right? Hoping that some steaks would eventually come rolling out of the kitchen, right? We learned our lesson, ha, 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 now feed us. We didn't. That was the whole night. They didn't get anything. Just one person crossing the divide, right? And you'd have folks surprised by hope. Actually, this is a book by a writer by the name of N.T. Wright. I've mentioned him before. He's kind of the modern-day C.S. Lewis, right? He's... he's you know, he writes stuff, he says stuff, and the whole Christian world listens and goes back to our theologies and wonders, do they match up with N.T. Wright? Um, in his book, Surprised by Hope, it was a follow-up to a really thick, thick 900-page book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. You don't want to... If you want a, a, not a watered-down or a dumbed-down, but a, um, a layman's version of this huge, read Surprised by Hope. Get it by N.T. Wright. It will blow you away. It's an amazing book. Um, and in that book, he just validates and explains a lot of things that I've been feeling, seeing, and hearing. I think you might be seeing and hearing and feeling also. And so what I want to do, I want to start with our hope of heaven. This morning, we've been singing about it. So I want to start from Revelation chapter 21. But as I read, I want you to do a favor. This is, you don't have to do it, <laughs> um, but it's kind of a thought exercise, something. 
I want you to hear today's passage, but I want you to become a different person. Right? I want you to become, and this will take a minute, kind of get into character. I want you to become a person that the church or you has decided they don't belong in heaven. Okay? And we all got that list, so don't, don't, don't get all holy on me. And, right? We all got that list, so I need you to pretend for a moment that you're one of the people, one of the groups, one of the nations, one of the tongues, one of the whatevers, right? that the church has made it very clear you don't belong so I can just kind of get into that mindset for a moment. You're on the outside, right? You're on the outside, and you're about to hear somebody on the inside, what they see in their future, but it's not a part of your future. Kind of internalize this, would you, for just, just a moment, right? This is from Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll end at verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Again, passed away, um, similar to the resurrected body of Christ, right? It's not destroyed, but it's transformed, right? In Hebrew thought, not a whole lot gets destroyed, but a whole lot gets transformed, right? So we have a, a transformation here of, of heaven and earth, not a, not a destruction and a start from scratch. Um, no longer any sea. Um, the ancient world, the Near Eastern world, they all, including the Israelites, they kind of divided the world up into three tiers. There was the dome, there was the earth, and there was beneath the earth, right? You read throughout Scripture, there's always these three phrases all the time. Watch what's happening here. The same three phrases, but one of them disappears. Because in most of the, including the Israelite view of the world, that under tier, that's usually watery, that's usually dark, that's usually scary, that's where sea monsters live. So you got the heaven dome above, and you got the earth in the middle. Yeah, scary, scary down below. Notice what's going on. Two tears remain. One's been done away with. No more fear. No more darkness. No more sea monsters. No more. All of that is gone. Now, again, don't confuse the sea with fresh water in the desert. Two radically different things, and we're going to see both of them in today's scripture, right? So the sea scary scary right everything dark evil and scary is no longer verse 2 says i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband i want you to notice a couple things here heaven and earth two things are happening there's a new heaven and earth and on top of that there's a new jerusalem right there's a new temple for god but this time it's not a temple it's like a whole city Right? A temple can't contain the glory of God, so now it's a whole city, a whole new temple, and a whole new heaven and earth. Right, This temple, this new Jerusalem is at the heart and at the center of a new heaven and a new earth. Also notice this. Earlier in Revelation, the cities of Babylon and Rome are both pictured as dressed as prostitutes. And now we have Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. What is she dressed as? A beautiful bride. Right? You see the, the difference that, that, that the angel and John are, are trying to, to show us. Right, we got two different worlds beautifully dressed. And throughout history, we know that Jesus has been getting the church ready for the, what, the wedding supper of the bride. Right? The, it's happening, the wedding supper of the bride. And so it's a better garden, a better heaven and earth for several reasons. Verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them 
and be their God. Again, there's no indication of who's speaking. If you notice, it's a third person, right? It's God and he and whatever the voice coming from the throne, it's not I, right? It's he and God. It's all third person. Just kind of want you to catch that because it's going to change here very quickly. Uh, to dwell, to, to tabernacle with us. And here's the crazy part. I love this. God himself will be with them, right? Does that sound like a phrase that we hear a lot of at Christmas? Emmanuel, God with us, really? So a literal Hebrew reading of this passage was literally saying um, they will be his people and God with them will be their God, right? Emmanuel, God with them will be their, just love that, that was amazing. Let me continue reading, this is verse four and five. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Again, not destroyed and started from scratch. Everything that God made, he said, was good. It just got tweaked, right? So everything's going to be transformed. Now, again, notice a whole bunch of verbs, future tense. He will, he will, he will. Someone is announcing this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen in the future. And then one verb spoken in the first person. There's only one of two places in the entire book of Revelation where the voice seems to be the voice of God, right? Not just a voice from the throne, but like God is speaking. It's only a couple places, one in chapter one and, and, and here. So you got to kind of pay attention, right? This, this is important. Basically, God is saying this. See, this is what I'm currently doing. For anyone who accepts my son as their savior, I am currently making everything new. I'm not going to wait till you get here. To make everything new. I am currently making everything new. Man, we got to grasp that and we've got to own that. This is not a future thing. He is currently in your lives, if you choose to accept it, he wants to make everything and everybody new. Currently, right now. Again, not destroying, but transforming. So that when my son returns, there will no longer be any death or pain or suffering. And then for the rest of chapter 21, right, he describes the walls and kind of the physical characteristics of the city, right? And then in chapter 22, and I'm going to jump there to 22, the first five verses. And this is where the angel, right, he's been showing John everything on the outside. Now he takes John into the city. He wants to show John what's going on in heaven, right? So now we get to see not just the walls and all the jewels and, and all that stuff. Now we get to see what's going on inside the new Jerusalem, Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, it says this. And again, keep listening. As if you had accepted Christ. I'm going to add it a little bit here. As if you had accepted Christ, but the church does not accept you or your salvation. Because we have a lot of that in our world today. We have a lot of people who claim they have accepted Christ. They love Jesus with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then we have church people saying, nah. Nah, it ain't. No, you're wrong. Really? Chapter 22, verse 1 says this, verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. You notice there's always two people on the throne. Right? That just like get your head wrapped around wrapped. There's always God and the Lamb. I don't know if God is one. So God and the Lamb are sitting on the throne, right? Just just kind of sit with that for the rest of the day. 
As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city was the water of life, right? Living water. Again, imagery of the garden from the book of Genesis, right? And, and the restored garden from prophets like Ezekiel and Zechariah and Joel, right? All, these, all these, these writings spring to the hearer's mind, right? Clearly, clearly illustrating the blessing of living in fellowship with God through Christ, Right, which was the goal from the very, very beginning. The very beginning of Genesis was that God would dwell with his people, but sin created a divide. And now that divide is being gotten rid of. This living water provides spiritual nourishment for all. Right, It's represented by the tree of life. And I want you to listen very closely to this. This is amazing. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healings of the nation. Right, again, the Garden of Eden springs to mind. The cherubim, remember, with the, the swinging, flaming sword, they're gone. They're gone. We again can access the garden, but it's not the old garden. It's a, it's, it's a new garden. It's an improved garden. Right? Make sure we understand that, too. It's an improved garden. Here's the amazing thing. Those 12 crops of fruit, right? They're not, not apples in, in January and oranges, and, right? They're 12 crops every single month. Also notice there's no vegetables, can I get an amen from the younger set? <laughs> Fine, whatever. I'll say amen, no vegetables. And then while Ezekiel spoke of healing for Israel, it's now for all the nations. And then John's vision moves from a description of the city to a prophetic speech. Right? So describing what he sees, and then this is what's going to happen in the city. Right? One negative affirmation, four positive affirmations. First, the negative. There will no longer be any curse. Whew. Lots of thoughts on that one. What, what does that mean? Probably the biggest one is the curse of death has been lifted. Right? That, that's kind of the biggie. But there's a lot of other ideas, right? The gates are always open. It's that idea that we can come and go and be fully secure. Right? When city gates are open during the day, People come and go in safety, but at night, what do they do with the city gates? They close them because bad things happen at night. Evil hides in the darkness, right? But here we have a city. The gates are always open, right? We're all, we can come and go 24-7 and always feel secure. Again, some feel that the gates, the open gates are eternally open to repentant nations. Others feel that anybody and everything under God's curse just ceases to exist or they're in hell right now. Curse has been lifted. Whatever, practically speaking, though, at the very least, this means that there will be no more fruitless labor. Can you imagine that? Nothing created, whether it be fellowship, relationships, creative projects, nothing creative will prematurely die. It will find its full fulfillment, right? Pure intentions, perfect execution every time. Right? This, is, this is what we see when the curse is lifted, at the very least. Maybe some of those other ideas, I, I, I don't know. Nothing will frustrate your desire to worship and serve God. Listen to this, the very next verse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. That always bothered me, kind of scared me a little bit. I don't know, maybe you. I'm thinking eternal altar boys in an eternal church service. And I'm, that wasn't, that, mm. <laughs> Any of you excited about that? An eternal altar boy at the eternal church service. 
I don't think that's I don't think that's the picture See, I'm not terribly certain that the way we worship, the way we serve, honor, and glorify God, the way we'll do all that then is any different than the way we do it now. Right? We worship, we serve, we honor, we glorify God by what? We love our neighbors as Christ loved us. That's how we, you know, well, I want to glorify God. Well, that's a pretty empty phrase. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I think the Bible means is when we love our neighbor as Christ loved us. I think of, and I just heard this, it wasn't my idea, I don't know what I heard it on, heaven will be kind of like a Muppet movie, right? Where every single person is so radically different, right? And they're all getting along. And instead of, you know, a, a prince and a princess kind of looking like all of us, right? You got frogs marrying pigs. It's, that's heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. It's just going to be this crazy big Muppet movie Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a tethered imagination right there. Um, the law of Christ, this is the kicker, the law of Christ will rule the kingdom of God then just as it does today, right? That's not going to change, right? In fact, that's God's mission for the church. In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright says that God builds his kingdom, and again, we were singing that, he builds the kingdom, we build for his kingdom, right? By preparing everybody to be able to fully participate in the kingdom that God is currently even now building. That's why we sing, again, build your church. That's what making disciples, Christ-like disciples, is all about. Even now, through his church, God is making everything and everybody new. That's what we do here, right? We don't receive new people and make them better. We receive broken people. And God's spirit renews them, transforms them. The key to all this is understanding that we live in a world, right, where God's kingdom has already been launched. With the coming of Jesus Christ, heaven came to earth, right? Y'all got that. Heaven came down, God with us. So the kingdom's already been launched. Every act, every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit takes its place within a long history of things which issue in Jesus' own resurrection anticipation of the final new creation. Everything you do matters. Everything you do for Christ and in the Spirit carries on into the next world. It doesn't die in this world. It's not, you're not just keeping busy, right, until something better happens. It, it's all connected. Everything that we do here has an effect there. N.T. Wright says this, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it, which significantly alters the gospel message that we tend to preach, right? The gospel invitation is not simply tick this box and one day you're going to go to heaven. The gospel invitation is follow this man and you will find forgiveness for your past, hope for your future. And here's the kicker. Here's what nobody ever thinks about, but I want to really draw your attention to this morning. You find purpose for today. Right? It's so easy to focus. My past has been forgiven, therefore my future is with God. But what, a, what does the book of Revelation say to us about today? Right? That book wasn't entirely written for you to be thinking about tomorrow. Nothing in God's Word wants you thinking solely about tomorrow. Right? By thinking about tomorrow, God is focusing your eyes on today because when, whatever happens today, that will be the tomorrow. Right? They're connected. We tend to kind of just 
separate the two entirely and think something just magical is going to happen somewhere in there. What you do in the present by painting, by preaching, by singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of this will last into God's future. Right? They're not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly. Right? Or a little easier, a little more bearable. I mean, that's not the point of doing good things until the day we leave it all behind, which the song puts wrong. Right? All these things that are a part of what we call building for God's kingdom. Again, it's way too easy to focus on our past and our future. But ignore the value and the importance that God has placed on today. And I have a feeling that he's asking us today, because we have our future secure, he's asking us to turn our face toward those who don't have this secure future. Turn our faces to them. Surprise them by hope. Here's what that'll finally mean. They'll see his face. Right? We already know we're going to see his face. But if the church has told you that you don't get to see his face, this is pie in the sky. This is what other people get. They're promised a privilege that was denied even to Moses. And again, we've seen in several places in Scripture the power of this idea of turning one's face to and from, right? You know immediately if somebody, if you have somebody's favor, right, if they give you the cold shoulder, cold face, turn away from you, or they turn toward you, right? That's just human nature. But in this, they'll see his face essentially. They'll finally, will finally, fully experience God's presence and his power, which is really what the Beatitudes were all about. Right? You guys recognize this. They weren't attitudes for us to emulate, right? There were promises to those that the church had excluded. I'm going to read from Luke. Luke has his own version of the Beatitudes. Most of you are familiar with Matthew's version of the Beatitudes. But in Matthew's version, some things get not hidden, but they're not as clear. But in Luke's version, they, became, they become just super, super, super clear. Right? That the Beatitudes, again, are not something that we're like, oh, I want to be that, I want to be that. It's Jesus saying, look, you don't have to be that in my kingdom. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Look, he's not asking us to be poor. Right? Blessed are you who are hungry now. God is not asking you to be hungry. Right? This is not something that we strive for. This is God saying, look at the hungry people. They need to be fed now. And in my, come, in my kingdom, if you operate under the rules of my kingdom, you will help feed them now. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And then the warning to the self-assured. People who deliberately, and I write that very deliberately, deliberately ignorant to the pleas of their neighbors. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your crown. <coughs> I'm thinking about these people sitting over here. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep 
And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that's how your ancestors treated the false prophets. Right? They invited them, gave them the best seats. And again, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Not only will they see his face, but his name will be on their foreheads. Right? That, that, that's a weird phrase. Essentially, the idea is that we'll be recognized and identifiable by our Christ-likeness. Right? That, that's about as close as I can get on that one. Right? We are all going to recognize you. We are going to be beautiful. We're all just going to be beautiful. Right now, when I look at the world sometimes, I just think, whoa, <laughs> what happened there? And that will all go away. Everything will just be, every, all of you will just be beautiful. Will be beautiful. And then it repeated the theme throughout Revelation. There will be no more night. There will be not a need for the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And, and again, lots of thoughts on that one. Right? How does God give off light? Again, it could be something as simple as like a, a, a euphorism, a Hebraism is what they're called. Um, number 625, if you all know what that is, that God would make his face shine upon them. That might be all there is in that passage, that God would make his face shine upon us. And finally, verse 5, and they'll reign forever and ever. And again, who are they reigning over? The nations, the new creation, kind of like what Adam was doing. Angels. And of course, somebody has to throw in ruling over those suffering in hell. Um, again, uh, with all of these possible interpretations of Scripture, I just kind of want to let you know it's okay to let your imagination kind of run with some of these passages because most passages in the Bible, they don't fill out a whole lot of details. And I do believe that God is inviting you to use what I, I, I used this phrase a little bit earlier. It's not my phrase. It's a theological phrase, tethered imagination. Right? Just kind of sit on a passage. Imagine yourself being different people in the story. How would you have reacted if you were this person? Because we all kind of go to the good person. Oh, that's me. <laughs> we're never the bad person in any of Jesus' parables. Never are we the Pharisees. But I think if we're really, really honest and we just kind of play mind games with ourselves and put ourselves in that position, we will see that maybe sometimes we're the Pharisees, right? And we're not the good people. Right, so this whole idea of um, tethered, tethered imagination. Again, it's okay to use tethered imagination as long as it doesn't detract us from what the writer's central message is. And I believe that this one is the message of the book of Revelation is that those who love Christ are going to experience an incredible level of intimacy and privilege. Everything else, that's... <laughs> I don't think anybody knows exactly. So what do we do with the book of Revelation? Nazarene theologian Carl Rotz, Carol Rotz, she writes this. God, through the sacrifice of the lamb, invites people to be a kingdom and priests. Right, we sang that earlier. Now, in anticipation of entering through the gates of the city, in future consummation, right? Our call and God's mission for the church, right, is to mediate the reconciliation of all peoples, all opinions, all political parties, all genders, all sexual orientation, all nations, all tongues, all dividing lines so that nobody gets left behind. That's the call of the church. That's what God has called us to do, to reach out into those dark places and to pull them out of darkness, to come in with light. We're going to celebrate communion in just a little bit, and I want to let you know it is gluten-free, 
in case you were wondering. What I want to do in closing, I just want to read a parable. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm going to ask one question at the end. Jesus has been invited to a house party of a prominent Pharisee. And he points out several things. I'm just going to point these out very, very quickly, and then I'm just going to read to you. At the very beginning of chapter 14, a man needs healing. None of the religious figures had made a move, so Jesus heals the man. All people deserve to be healed at all times. And then everybody had taken their seats of honor, but Jesus reminds them, right? If you do that, and the, and, and the host comes in and has somebody that they really want to honor, they're going to ask you to move. And you're going to look pretty silly. So if you take the seat of honor, you might ask, be asked to move. And then serve without expectation or repayment or reward. Right? Jesus asked them, are you really serving when you serve people who don't need to be served? Right? And does that reflect your vision of God's kingdom? And then Jesus says this, and I'm going to pose just one final question. I'm just going to read. Just kind of sit back and find your place in this parable. You don't need to tell anybody. Jesus continued at verse 13. After, after saying, look, if you grab the good seat, you might be asked to move. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness. When one of, the table, one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Right, he, he's, he's sitting over here. He, he knows, right? He's, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another. I just got married, so I can't come. Servant came back and reported this to his master, and the owner of the house became very angry. And he ordered his servant, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, right, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in and convince them, right, don't hold a gun to their heads. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full, I tell you. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And my only question is this. Who's going to be surprised by hope when something that you do says to them, maybe I'm going to get a seat at that table. Maybe I get to be at the table because this Christian friend of mine just said that I get a place. And everybody else has told me I don't. Bow your heads, Father. What a call that we have. What a difficult, difficult call. So much discernment needed. Father, we can go wrong in so many different ways. We can be over-merciful and we can be over-judicious. We just... How do we love without destroying? How do we, how do we redeem and, and transform Father, on the night that your son was betrayed, he showed us what this would entail, how we were to do this, 
huge calling, this task. So Father, this morning as we prepare our hearts to receive your communion, Father, help us understand, help us to be absolutely certain that you do love us, that you spilt your blood and allowed your body to be broken for us. Father, that's how we're to do it. Thank you for your son and what he did as we celebrate that. In his name I pray.